in a study that I've entitled The Call and Commission. As we read the word of the Lord, as David said, Thy word, O Lord, have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. The reason for our attention to the word of the Lord is that we might know what it is that God has for us. How we ought to live our lives and how we can be engaged in the ministry that He's called us to on this earth. Because we've not been saved to be placed into some type of holding pattern until we either die or the Lord comes for His church. We have been saved to then, therefore, become part of the Great Commission of Matthew 28, that we might go into all of the world and preach the gospel and to make disciples of all men. Two parts. Make sure people come to Christ and then teach them to be followers of Christ. That part is for us to transmit the Word of God to the world around us. And so this morning, picking up in the first verse of the 10th chapter, we have the call. And if you remember our position now, as we have completed the Galilean ministry of the Lord and His disciples, we have now seen them go towards Samaria and be rejected in that place. They're now heading down the Perean Bypass, down along the Jordan. They're going to Jerusalem. Jesus is on His way to make good on the messianic promise that God made. He said, I will give unto you a prophet that is like Moses and yet greater than he. And so Jesus is going to complete the mission. In the process of doing that, there is very little time left. Jesus is going to say it is finished in just a short period of time. He's going to usher in the age of grace. But this period of time is at the end of the time of the law and the prophets and of the time of the law being permanent in, as far as the Jews were concerned and the beginning stages of the age of grace. And so they're in this transitional place. And because they're in a transitional place and because time is short, Jesus takes a rare group of people one that's never been repeated, and he sends them out on a special mission. In essence, to prepare the way of the Lord so that when he dies on Calvary's cross, the plan of grace is underway. And so this morning, firstly the call, and then the commission, and as we finish up this morning, we're going to partake of communion uh, together because it is we who have been tasked with the job, with the mission, to go forth and make disciples. In order to do that, we need to be walking with Jesus ourselves. We, we need to be in His Word ourselves. We need to be serving the Lord Jesus Christ ourselves. We need to be the examples about whom the world could look and see and say, I can follow Jeff. I can follow Doug, I can follow Steve. I can follow those who follow Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the attentiveness of your people to rise up early to seek your face. 
to know your word, the power of it. Lord, the sharpness of it, the ability it has to correct and to instruct and to give us righteousness from your perspective. Would you anoint your word as we study it? Would we receive it with gladness so that our hearts might be full? Lord, we give you this time. Lord, open up each of our hearts and each of our minds to receive from the halls of heaven. We bless you. We praise you. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Verse 1 here in Luke 10, and then after these things, okay, these words are almost entirely the words of Jesus. So if Jesus says something, it's worth taking note of. Amen? After these things, after the Galilean ministry, after the sending forth of the initial twelve, they have come back and reported to Jesus, after these things... This is a new phase in ministry. Things are going to be heated up. They're going to move very quickly. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also. It's an oft-missed passage of Scripture. What is the Lord saying? What He's really saying to us this morning is, as He sent these people out on this mission, uh, they were to go forth with the same type of power and with the same message that the apostles went forth. Though these are not apostles in the technical sense. They're apostles in that they're sent on a mission. And so to some degree, and be careful not to you know, get hung up on the fine minutia here of theology, we all have an apostolic mission in that regard. We've been sent on a commission. We have been given, if you accept a commission in the U.S. military, you're accepting the duties and you're accepting the responsibilities of that commission. The duties are to faithfully fulfill what you've been called to do, to defend the Constitution of the United States and to fulfill all of the duties of that office which you take that commission of. And then when you do it, you then have the obligation to go forth with everything you've got. That's what the Lord's saying to these 70. He's saying, I'm calling you. I'm offering you a commission. Here's the call. You're going to go forth. And so he sent them, and notice this, two by two before his face. And remember that phrase, we've already seen it. It means before his physical appearance in those basic areas. So the Lord is going to come behind these 70, if you will. And so he sends them out two by two. Can I give you a little secret here? Uh, This is the secret to successful ministry. Any pastor that tries to go out, any person that tries to go out, by themselves almost assuredly will fail. And here's why. It's brutal. It is tough. The enemy hates you, doesn't want anything to occur through your life, and all manner of the gates of hell will be opened against the person who tries to be an island in ministry. And and I will prophetically say that I have not seen a single person succeed in ministry by themselves. Not one. This church has in it uh, uh, the better part of a hundred people who serve on a regular basis. I have assisting pastors. We have elders. We have an elder board. We have a board of trustees. I am not alone in ministry. If I were, I would fall into that category of those who've passed by the wayside. Ministry is intended to be an endeavor wherein we lift one another's arms. 
And he says, go into every city and place where he himself notices, don't miss this part, is about to go. They're preparing the way. They're softening the target. They're, they're plowing the ground. They're watering. They're tossing out some seeds, some fertilizer. They're getting the ground ready. Can I tell you that that's an important facet of ministry? Sometimes people get upset that they've never actually prayed with someone to receive Christ, but they've brought dozens maybe to church. Maybe they've spent their time engaged in children's ministry and just simply uh, ministering to our children. And maybe you've never had that opportunity. It is still immensely valuable to the harvest that you are engaged in the work of the Lord where God has called you. It takes all of us working together for this thing called the gospel to go forth. It doesn't happen miraculously in a general sense. It can because God is God. But He's chosen to use you and use me and use us and use the church to bring that message to life. And so these were to go and prepare the way of the Lord. The same thing that John the Baptist did, by the way. The same thing that you do when you take time to tell someone about the truth of the gospel. Maybe you won't be there to pray with them when they receive Christ, but you will be there to see them in glory. So don't forsake the calling on your life to go and make disciples in whatever part you have. And then he said to them, and the rest of what follows are the words of the Lord, the harvest is truly great, but look at the problem. Can you see it? The laborers are few. The harvest is great. The message is one of salvation. The, the, the preaching of the gospel saves men's souls, for faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. As we teach the word of God, we're making opportunity for people to know the things they need to know to come to Christ. The problem is, people don't want to get engaged in the work. They want to kind of sit on the bench and therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Notice what he's saying here. He's not saying, well, pray for somebody else to go do it. Pray for somebody else to come and talk to that person that you know doesn't know the Lord. He's saying, pray for the Lord to send laborers into the harvest field. And can I tell you, if you know about it, God's probably speaking to you to go do it, not necessarily to pass it along to somebody else. Maybe He's called you to just simply pray for someone else to go. But I think one of the great failures of the church is that we're too busy praying for others to go and not praying for ourselves to be used. Remember that the Lord's primary purpose at this time is to actually minister to the nation of Israel, but that is about to shift. When he gets to Golgotha and he gives his life a ransom for many, when he says it is finished, when he commits his spirit into the hands of the Father, things transition. But he is still after Israel at this point. Romans chapter 1 reminds us, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God 
unto salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and then the Gentile. That's, that's the point. And so Jesus is saying, look, I've got about 65 miles to travel from where we currently are right now, and I'm heading towards Jerusalem. There is no way that I can go and prepare in a physical sense because he was not exercising his authority as God incarnate in human flesh. He was a man. He could only be in one place at one time. And so he gathers these 70 together. He calls the disciples and he says, Now you go forth, head the direction I'm going to go, and stop and begin to do that work so that when the message comes, they'll be ready. And family, that's where you come in. That's where I come in. We've all been called, in essence, to go and make disciples. To give people the opportunity to come to know Jesus Christ. And sometimes you do that by just being nice to your neighbor. Sometimes you do that by actually teaching them about God's Word. Sometimes you, you post some scripture on Facebook and somebody sees it and they want to know what in the world it is that's up with you. And you get a chance to tell them, amen? But you got to tell them. You need to accept the call. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, a scripture that's not up here on this slide, but I'll just paraphrase it for you. To some he gave the ability to be apostles and prophets and evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, me, Pastor Dan, some pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Equip the saints. You all have been called to get engaged in the work of the ministry. Now, as you know, I'm, well, I'm a rabid basketball fan. Love basketball. Love to play basketball. I would eat a basketball if they were edible. I love basketball. See, into the basketball season, we're, we're down there. Clipper Nation rules right now. Can I tell you where the best seats in any basketball game are? They're at the end of the bench. If you were to buy those seats at a Clippers game, the ones where all the stars sit, they're five to ten thousand dollars to watch a single basketball game. Those are the best seats in the house. But can I also tell you they're the most fruitless seats in the house because you don't get to play you just get to watch you get to sit oh you get to see the game courtside view sweat flinging all over you ball may go buzzing by your head but you ain't getting in the game can I tell you where the best seats in the house are you're sitting in them the question is, you're going to get in the game. You're going to go get engaged. You're going to say, put me in, coach. So you know what? I don't want to sit here warming up this bench not one second longer. I remember those. I remember sitting on the end of the bench. Wasn't any fun. Don't know why anybody would want to do it. It is time for the church to get off the bench.
and get in the game. And we need to pray for reinforcements. You see, these guys weren't technically apostles, but they were sure called into the harvest. Can I remind you that farming is hard work, and harvesting is hard work? If you travel anywhere where people make a living providing the food that you pull out of that box, you see, you probably didn't know this, but it doesn't come that way from God. Somebody actually has to do the hard work. They gotta be out there at O dark thirty and they stay there until the sun goes down. And when harvest season comes, and hear this well, and it doesn't matter what type of agriculture you're talking about, when harvest season comes, when the crop is ready to harvest, when the harvest needs to come in, those farmers stay in the field pretty much around the clock. They take just enough time so that they don't run themselves through a combine or something. They get a little bit of sleep. They take a little bit of nourishment in. They take a little bit of liquids, but they're in the harvest field until the harvest is in. Be pretty stupid if you put all that work into farming for six, eight, nine months, and then you just kind of let the harvest drop on the ground. Amen? You'd call that a lousy farmer, wouldn't you? I would. Wow, that's the nicest crop of corn I've ever seen. Why is it in the dirt? We would think that person's crazy. Don't do all the work and then watch the harvest go to fallow ground. Get engaged in harvesting. Get engaged in the process of bringing in that fruit that God wants to harvest. Too many Christians are playing and praying. They're playing and praying. They're just kind of goofing around. Oh, pray a little bit. But they're not praying effectively because they're not crying out as Isaiah said in Isaiah 6, Here am I, send me. They're crying out, There's the problem, send him or her. Get in the harvest. Get in the game. Next, the commission. And I want you to see this because it's a difficult calling. We, we, we don't want to pray for an easier job. We want to pray for our part of the job. Here in California, all up and down from the Central Valley, all the way out to the Coachella Valley and down towards Yuma, you, you, you find all these areas where we've turned you know desert, in essence, into farmland. I can tell you another thing that makes farming really hard, and that's very few hands in the field. When that crop's ready to come in, you you got even 30 acres of tomatoes. You can forget about getting those in if it's you and your cousin Bob. Okay, It ain't happening. They're going to stay out there in the field and rot. You need a whole bunch of people to come alongside and make sure that all of those pieces of fruit make it into a box so they can be consumed. It's hard work. Hard work is best accomplished by... Many hands making light the work. Amen? You get the process here. I think if we all got engaged, (laughs) Scripture says, be busy about your father's business for a very specific purpose, to bring about the coming of the Lord. You know, I'd like to go home to heaven, so for those of you not engaged right now, get busy. I want to go home. And I'm not chastising you at all. I'm simply saying it's in our best interest to get engaged. 
You, you tired of the rat race here on earth? I can tell you where there's no rat race. It's in heaven. Tired of the pain, the suffering, the sorrow here on earth? I can tell you where there's none of that. Heaven. Get busy. Live a heavenly life now. Pick up now, if you would, in verse 3 with me. And here's the commission. Verse the terms of it. And he says in verse 3, Go your way. Behold, I send you out as... You're just going to have a great time. It's going to be like a vacation. You're going to go to all the finest places. You're going to eat the finest food. And we're putting you up in four and five star hotels. And when you get there, there's going to be a concierge. And the concierge is going to come minister to you. And they're going to bring you little tiny mints and put them on your pillows. And you're just going to have a wonderful time. Oh, wait. doesn't say that. It says, Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. Yikes! Really? Uh-huh. You know why that is? Because the message we have came from the Lamb of God. And the message we have is the love of God that's come down, descended to mankind through the presence of Jesus Christ. And that message is one that all men may be saved. And so it's not a message of, hey, learn this, do this, do that. It's, hey, meet Jesus. It's a lamb message in a world full of wolves. I don't know how many of you have had an opportunity to, to watch a pack of wolves when they descend onto, you know, a helpless elk or whatever. It's not a pretty sight. It's a pretty overwhelming force. And that's the picture here that the Lord's trying to make. And so read it with me. Just follow along. He says, neither carry a money bag or a knapsack or sandals and greet no one along the road, but whoever's house you enter, say first peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, then your peace will rest upon it. And if not, it will return to you and remain in that house eating and drinking such things as they give you for a laborer is worthy of his wages and do not go from house to house. And so he begins to lay out the commission. And here's the commission you're going to have no special protection. There's not going to be a divine force field over you. A lot of Christians mistakenly think that. If I get saved, then God will put me in a little bubble, and wherever I go, stuff will just bounce off of me. Not going to happen. You're going to be as lambs among wolves, and you're going to get bit, you're going to get chewed on, you're going to get spit on. You're going to have all manner of hateful things said against you falsely for His namesake, Jesus is very clear about what it means to be a disciple. No special protection. They weren't to take along any special provision either. Notice this. They don't have a little magic wallet. They don't just open it up and all of a sudden there they are, Caesar bucks inside. They have none of that. In fact, they got zip, nada, nothing. They don't even have extra shoes. For you ladies, tough deal, Amen. No extra shoes? Seriously? No extra shoes. No money even. Now remember the time. There's a purpose for this. He's not saying that we need to follow this example. These are 70 special people sent out to prepare the way of the Lord. And here's why. Because to prepare for a journey like this and to wait on these things the journey would have never happened. Do you know how long it would have taken you to save up maybe six months worth of food? 
six months worth of mission support, six months of clothing and all that, so you could go and minister, they would have never gone. The way would not have been prepared. And so don't take this too far, but for them, no special provision. Not even for their anticipated needs. They were supposed to just go. No special prosperity. You didn't get to take anything along in case of need. Now, I'm a Boy Scout, okay? I'm still a Boy Scout. If you look at my car, it's well, it's kind of dumb. I got extra tools and water and flashlights and you know, I just have everything inside my cars. I'm one of those very few people that if you actually get lost with me someday, we're gonna make it. Okay, we're just gonna. Because I'll have enough stuff for all of us. It just that's the way it's gonna happen. And sometimes it's kind of a sickness or a disease, you know, it's just like, oh you got one of, yeah, I got one of those too. What do you got? Oh yeah, I've got a barbecue. It's underneath just look underneath the car, it's underneath there. These guys were to take nothing. They were to pack up. Well, I don't have my emergency kit. It's okay, just go. The Lord will take care of you. And they were certainly going to have no special people pleasures. Salute nobody on the way, verse, verse 4 says. It wasn't saying being mean or unkind. It was simply saying be dedicated, be diligent, because during that day and time, here's what happened when you met people on the road. It was customary to give them the greeting, Shalom, peace unto your house. And if they accepted the greeting, peace unto their house, and they invited you into their house, then what you needed to do was to be ready to go spend time with them, possibly days. And if there happened to be a wedding going on, it could be a week or more. So he's saying, look, we don't have time for you to meet with Manny, Mo, and Jack, the pep boys. You need to go preach the gospel right now, prepare the ground. Don't be unkind, be purposeful. And so now he begins to, to draw on the tidings, first the terms, now the tidings, the things that would be say, and whatever city you enter, if they receive you, eat such things as are set before you. And verse 9 it says, and heal the sick there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. He spends very little time on the receptive city. He spends a bunch of time on the derisive city. The city that would not accept. And so he says in verse 10, But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say the very dust of your city which clings to us we wipe off against you. Two types of soil. Two types of hearts. Two destinations. Two roads. You get the picture? Jesus always spoke in these terms. He says, look, it's saints and ain'ts. It's those who know Jesus and those who don't. And so he says to them at that time, Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near to you, but I say to you that it will be more tolerable. Now, now hear this well. And I want to elaborate on this as we close, and then we'll begin to pass out the elements of communion in just a few moments. It will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Notice what he says next. And this is kind of a strange passage of Scripture. But it's very purposeful and very willful. Woe to you, Horasin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Those were the twin cities of 
the surrounding region, one to the east, one to the west, of Capernaum, Jesus' hometown. They had been the recipients of all manner of miracles and healings and feedings. Jesus himself had resided there. The disciples, half of them lived in those three towns. They were from that region of the world. They had every spiritual wealth you can imagine. They got to see Jesus at work, literally. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. Sitting in sackcloth and ashes, and it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. Now I'm going to just tell you straight up, if you're not a little concerned in hearing those words, you ought to be. Because Jesus is making real clear statement here that the sin against the light of God's Word, to be in in the game and never play, to sit around thinking that you've got your fire insurance, you pull out the grace card, and to never, ever get engaged in the things of the Lord, you better watch out. Because Jesus said, it's going to be worse for you on Judgment Day than the people who lived in the most vile cities ever recorded in all of the Bible. Pretty huge contrast. And he says, And you, Capernaum, who were exalted to heaven, you literally had me living in your town. But we brought down to Hades. He who hears you, hears me. He who rejects you, rejects me. And he who rejects me, rejects me, him who sent me. He says, look, the message is simple. I came to save mankind. Let's not get confused by who's on the top of the list and who's on the bottom of the list. Let's remember that to him who knows it's sin, it's sin. And to those who've been given light, you're responsible for the light that's come into your life. And so these two places, the receptive cities, very clear. It says good things will happen. As I've shared with you before, if you want God's best, give Him yours. But I want to focus in on the second group for just a moment. Remember the age of grace hasn't ensued. Grace is how we respond today. Be very clear on this. But he begins to give them the, the picture of culpability. You see, Sodom and Gomorrah, without question, was probably the single most vile city on earth. So much so, that when you read the book of Job, in verse 7 of the book of Job, it's just a single chapter, remember that, verse 7, it says there, in Jude, excuse me, Sodom and Gomorrah, and the cities around them in similar manner to these having given themselves over to sexual immorality, gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example of suffering and eternal fire. If that's not clear enough to you that God really is serious about the issue of homosexual behavior, then you don't know what your Bible says as a Christian. He's serious. It was serious business. 
Abraham pleaded over that city and said, If you can find ten righteous, will you spare the city? And there's a purpose for me overemphasizing this particular part of it right now. Because you need to see the contrast. God was serious. He destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. What they did was inexcusable. And the Bible consistently says it's inexcusable behavior. He says, you can't practice that and claim to know me. You just can't. It was an abomination in the Old Testament. It remains so in the New Testament. Both Testaments speak of that truth. But as bad as that was, unrepentant homosexual behavior, bring those men out so we can rape them. As bad as that was, he says, woe to you, or a sin and the Seda. That scares the living daylights out of me. And here's why. Because to know the truth, to understand the truth, to, to be compared, if you will, in a negative sense, people who heard the word of the Lord, saw miracles in their presence, were absolutely engaged in understanding who Jesus was, they got to meet Him personally, that it's actually worse for those people on the Day of Judgment than it will be for people who happen to have grown up in Las Vegas. Or Ciudad Juarez. Tough city to grow up in. Harsh environment. Carnal. Scary. Jesus is saying, be careful. Understand what I'm getting at here. He's really saying to them, you, you, you see the twin cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida had more culpability. They had more understanding about the goodness of the Lord and consequently they would be held more responsible than people from Sodom. We need to pray for people who are caught in sin. Amen? We need to minister to people who are in a behavior that could keep them from understanding the grace of God. We, that's an absolute fact. But I think we also need to pray for Christians who won't get off the bench. We need to pray for Christians to get in the harvest field. We need to pray for Christians to stop sinning. We need to pray for the church to get right with God. We need to pray that we ourselves can be followed because we're following Jesus actually. The more light we have, the more searching is His judgment. That's the message here. The more light you have, and I want to be blunt with you for a moment. If you've been coming to church for five, ten years and you're not engaged actively in putting your faith to the test somewhere, you need to rethink where you are with the Lord. Because He didn't save you for you to get fat and happy spiritually. He did not save you to put you on a bench so you can simply do whatever you want with your remaining days because you're going to heaven. He saved you to engage you as the Lord of the harvest in the harvest field. He saved you to put 
forth the word of God into people's lives so that they also might be saved. This is a harsh message. And Jesus preached it to his disciples. He says, be careful. He says, you make sure and tell them correctly that to those who have more light, more is going to be required of them to those than those who walked in darkness. We need to have a special compassion for people who are hung up in sin. Absolutely. Absolutely. But we also need to have boldness to tell Christians to get off the bench and stop playing games with God. And I want to challenge you. Because I don't think there's a person in here who doesn't know somebody who's in that category. Maybe you're here and you're in that category. Maybe you've never thought about your faith being actually a faith that works, as James said. He said faith without works is dead, didn't he? It's what he meant. It's what he meant. Faith without works is dead. It's deadness. And Jesus says, it's going to be worse for the people who are right next to me than the people who lived in Sodom and Gomorrah on Judgment Day. Because the people in Sodom and Gomorrah had an excuse. The church doesn't have an excuse. We're, we're excuseless to be walking around with our ticket to heaven in our back pocket going, nanny, nanny, nanny. I'm going to heaven. Too bad about you. I'm going to ask the elders to begin to pass out the elements. And as they do so, I'm going to ask you to have some serious time of contemplation as I share a couple of things with you. Sinning in light of the light that's in us is a dangerous thing. And a passage I don't share frequently and often, found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I would set for you this way. Jesus said in John 11, Are there not twelve hours in the day? And he's speaking about the day as in daylight. If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. He says, look, there's light. and, And when you're walking in the light, you can see where you're going. We have the light of the world in us. We should be able to see where we're going. He goes on to say, but if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light's not in him. The truth of the matter is, the reason we stumble is because we're not walking in the light. The reason that we have issues is because we fail to stay in the light. Not because the light isn't there. Not because the light isn't available to most of us. If you're a churchy person, if you've been coming to this church for a while, you know what God's Word says. And I'll stand before God one day to give an account for me doing that so I can tell you emphatically I'm not anticipating any problems with God about how I taught God's Word. A couple of mistakes here and there, guaranteed I'm human. But you've gotten the whole counsel of God's Word in this church. The whole counsel. The stuff that makes you really happy and a passage like today that's going to challenge you a little bit. And I'm not trying to beat anybody up. I'm simply trying to say, look, the time is short. 
We are just like those disciples standing in the northern region of Samaria, looking down the mountain ridge towards Jerusalem, and the time is short. I don't know when the Son of Man's coming. I don't know when the trumpet's going to blow. I don't know when you're taking your last breath. I certainly don't know when I'm taking mine. But I know this, there's less time left than there's ever been to win people to Christ. Paul, as he was sharing the ordinance of the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. For on the day that the Lord Jesus, that same night which he was betrayed, he took the bread. The same night he was betrayed, he took the bread. Lamb amongst wolves. Amen? Same night. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That's a quotation of what Jesus said at that first Last Supper. And he said, After the same manner also he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood, and as you do this, as often as you drink it, do so in remembrance of me. And so you have both of those elements. You have a cup representing the blood of Christ, and you have a small wafer, a matzah cracker, And if you look at it, it's rather interesting. It's pierced through just as Jesus was. It has signs of iniquity. Those burnt marks are iniquity. When you're a baker, burning's not good. Amen? They're signs of iniquity. The chastisement of his peace was placed upon, our peace was placed upon him. Cracker shows that. Jesus got beaten and pierced through because of us. He shed his blood because of us. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He says, look, these things are symbolic. He's not saying they literally become my body or they literally become my blood. They're symbolic. You do show forth these things until I come get you. Either one at a time or he raptures the church. In either case, this represents what it took to get us to heaven. And therefore, verse 27 says, whoever eats of this bread or drinks of this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. The same thing he told the disciples. He said, be really careful because you could be living in Capernaum. You could be going to church every day. You could be living in Bethsaida. You could be over there where the disciples hung out on their days off. You could be in Chorazin and have all that the Lord has ever said right at your fingertips. You could own every computer program about the Bible known to man. You could listen to K-Wave 24 hours a day, seven days, the wireless seminary. You could go to Pastor Jeff's office every single day of the week and sit down and discuss some matter of theology with him. But if it doesn't produce you getting off the bench if it doesn't make you responsible to the light, if it doesn't cause you to do what God wants you to do, then you need to be a little concerned. 
And so Jesus said, don't do that, writing through Paul, but let a man examine himself. That's what he says. Paul says to the church, he says to that church at Corinth, he goes, look guys, don't hold these elements in your hand and think it didn't cost God his own son. That it didn't cost Christ his life. Don't put him back up on the cross again because of your unfaithfulness. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself. It's pretty much what the Lord said to the disciples, isn't it? That's why it's so painfully horrific for Christians to dabble in sin. Because the judgment is more severe than the person who doesn't know better. He's looking at you in the light of truth. He's looking at you in the light of the cross. He's looking at you having given his life for you. And so I'm going to ask you to take a few moments to ask yourself. Is there anything I need to do? Is there anything you want me to get engaged in, God? Is there something I am doing that shouldn't be happening in my life? Would you please square those things away with the Lord this morning before we partake? Because I don't want you partaking judgment. I don't want you taking of this cup and this cracker and not realizing that what it represents is the body of the Lord Jesus Christ and His blood that flowed down from the cross that's washed you and made you white as snow. You, you don't want to be like Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, who saw all the goodness of the Lord but wouldn't get engaged in the harvest. Spend some time in prayer and then I'll close and then we'll worship the Lord. Lord Jesus, it was indeed on that night that you were betrayed that you took that loaf of bread and you broke it and you showed it to the disciples sitting at the table and you reminded them that your body would be broken for them. And you also, after supper, Lord, after the breaking, after the acknowledgement of the cost, took the cup and you drank from it yourself first and showed the disciples that this is a new covenant. Lord, your blood shed for the remission of sin. Lord, the, the erasing of what the law couldn't do. And Lord Jesus, we, we thank you, God, that you could take us and pour treasure into these broken clay pots, Lord. And we realize that we've been saved by grace and through faith. It's not works. We can't boast about it. But we also recognize that you've saved us for a purpose. And this morning, anything, God, anything that's holding us back, Lord, as Paul said, any sin that besets us, knocks us off the path, God, we just repent. We say, Lord, clean us up, dust us off, put us in the game. We thank you for your body which was broken and your blood that was shed. And we ask you, Lord, to do a fresh work in us, Lord. Ignite your church. 
Cause us to be busy about our Father's business in these last days. Lord, help us to have an answer for the hope that lies within us. Help us to be bold about our faith. Help us to never waver. Lord, keep us in that place where you can pour out your glory upon us. We ask all this in the precious name of Christ Jesus, our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's partake together.